Welcome to Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And in this video, we are going to do an introduction to the thinking of Mikhail Bakunin. But rather than providing a bio or talking about his whole life story or something like that, we're going to provide a really short intro to who he is and then go through a list of quotes from Bakunin that will give us an idea of sort of his ideological transformation, what he stood for and what he was about as uh, sort of the father of revolutionary anarchism. So Bakunin was born in 1814 and died in 1876. He was Russian. He was born actually to a noble family, which is kind of interesting. He went and served in the army and then quit his commission, then went to study philosophy and so on. And then he met uh, Proudhon and Karl Marx and got involved in sort of that milieu that was going on in Europe at the time in Russia and Paris and so forth. And really, I just explain him when I'm not doing a full bio as kind of the ideological counterpart of Karl Marx. They butted heads a lot. In fact, Jared and I were joking last week, we were talking about how funny it would be if people like that existed today. And instead of in pamphlets and in person uh, critiquing each other, they would just do YouTube response videos uh, back and forth. And you can imagine the fire from Bakunin and Marx on YouTube. Uh, if that was the case. So he is the anarchist that is sort of the anti-socialist uh, to Marx's socialism and communism, which you'll see come out in the quotes that we're going to go through. So without further ado, let's jump right in, I think, to uh, some of the things that he had to say. One must wholly annihilate one's personal ego, annihilate everything that forms its life, its hopes and its personal beliefs. One must live and breathe only for the absolute through the absolute. We highlighted this one. Why did you pick this one out, Nick? Why did you think this one was was worthy of the numerous backing in quotes that we could have used? Um, I like his use of the term annihilate, obviously, and talking about uh, the ego. And this, to me, is sort of like an internal subjective, uh, talking about internal subjective revolution, right? That internally people have to really focus on annihilating their own ego, everything that forms who they think that they are and what they know about themselves and their identity. Also at this time around this era is when Stirner is writing, it publishes uh, Ego and Its Own. That's all about egoism. Um, and it's somewhat popular today on the left, this sort of version of egoist anarchism. I wonder, I don't know for a fact, but I wonder if Bakunin is actually targeting that specifically. I don't know. So for me, obviously, we've done videos, if you go back through our catalog, on Sufism and a little bit on Taoism. And mm -hmm. that was the connection for me, is its yeah. ties to Sufism. And, and of course, Suf Sufism predates this era uh, by, by a thousand years at this point. So this idea of annihilating one's ego in the case of creating a more um, cohesive and reciprocal social organization was not novel. And I just really appreciated that we got to see it come from a very different angle than more of the spiritual Sufi um, angle than, than, well, yeah, than we're used to. I think that's important. So anyway, next one on historical materialism. You want to read this one? Yep. Who are right, the idealists or the materialists? The question, once stated in this way, hesitation becomes impossible. Undoubtedly, the idealists are wrong and the materialists are right. Yes, facts are before ideas. Yes, the ideal, as Proudhon said, is but a flower whose root lies in the material conditions for existence. Yes, the whole history of humanity, intellectual and moral, political and social, is but a reflection of its economic history. So here we very clearly see where he's in line with Marxist thought and Marx's and Engels' opinions on historical materialism. Understand that they're all coming at the tail end of German idealism, that philosophical tradition, specifically Hegel. Um, and in fact, Marx and uh, Bakunin are both neo-Hegelians at the beginning of sort of their ideological development. And then they 
as we all know, become staunch materialists. So here he's kind of explaining that, 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 that way of thinking, really. And this is a time when it's kind of funny that when Hegel is writing, at that point, German idealism is like, that's it. Everyone basically was in line with that. Not that there weren't critics. Clearly there were, but you get the idea. It wasn't until Marx's age, and we see this here from Bakunin as well, that people really, really started critiquing that idea and materialism really came to the forefront. Bakunin and Marx both agree on that. I like to oversimplify this argument, especially in classes. It's it's basically like like this. The invention of fire would be an easy example. So... When original man, whenever this took place, um, quote unquote, invented fire, did this idea of fire just pop into his head at random without having any experience or context around it? Or did this individual or set of individuals see fire first somehow, maybe through a lightning strike or something along those lines, and then seek to recreate the material condition so that could happen again? And I argue vehemently they probably saw this happen and were able, again, this didn't, didn't happen overnight, but recreate those material conditions to understand how to create it on their own mm -hmm. and to be able to control it. The idea of fire didn't just like pop in somebody's head one day. Like it, I just don't. Yeah. And, and we could use this across like history, time, space, et cetera. Although I think that I fully agree with you in that regard. However, I think that the materialists, especially in this time, right? And Marx's critique in the German ideology, I think, yeah, it has to be because he's critiquing the German ideology, right. Hegelianism, and Stirner. Um, they talk a lot about the origins of quote-unquote man, and he even does it here, right? Where he says, facts are before ideas. And that's like 90% of the argument. I think where they lose me is talking about how that's still the engine that's driving humanity. But mm -hmm. let's not go into a huge debate on materialism and idealism. Um, I don't think that too many people today would disagree with the materialist origins of the consciousness of man but as far as it being the driving material force right. of humanity eh, we fundamentally i mean our you know our, our our channel is called revolution and ideology we fundamentally understand the power ideology has um there is a reflexive relationship there so, yeah and i honestly sure. i'm sure we'll get bashed for me saying this by like the staunch materialists and the philosophers but i think that the argument is actually passe at this point right like even in 2021 having an argument of materialism versus idealism and what was first and what is the most important foundation of humanity i think it's it's outdated at this point at best speaking of the the origins of man and and our relationship with of course the material world Bakunin had this to say he said man will never be able to combat nature he can't conquer or master it being the ultimate product of nature on this earth man through his individual and social development continues so to speak the work creation movement and life of nature man's relations to man's relations to this universal nature cannot be external cannot be those of slavery or of struggle he carries nature within himself and is nothing outside of it. It seems quite evident that no revolt is on the part of man against what I call universal causality or universal nature. The latter envelops and pervades man. It is within and outside of him and constitutes his whole being. What are your thoughts on that one? I really like this one because he's he explains how man is a part of nature and exists within nature and can't possibly exist outside of nature. Like, that's not a thing. I think even today, let alone in Bakunin's time, like, people were so, like, anthropocentric. Mm -hmm. We focus our entire existence on man being the center of the way that we behave and the way that we think. We fail, I think, to realize 
that human beings are a part of nature. There is no existing outside of nature. And to use uh, Bakunin's thought here, there is no mastering of nature. Like that's not a thing. We are natural ourselves. We are part of nature and so on. This separation obviously is one of the leading causes, I mean, during his era of, of development of industrialism. And, and people like him obviously could, could see what was going to transpire. Like this mm -hmm. wholesale destruction of the natural world was also meaning somewhat of a wholesale destruction of the natural relationships we would have, again, not just with the, with, with the environment, but with each other. Like this exactly. was an erosion and he saw mm -hmm. this as wildly unsustainable. I mean, he, I don't want to call him an environmentalist in the modern sense of a word, but like this is kind of previewing a lot of environmentalist mm -hmm. arguments we're hearing today. And he's saying these, again, a century and a half before. Um, Peter Kropotkin also had very similar views on this. Um, we're not going to talk about him a whole lot. He deserves his own his own separate episode. But like this is where like this anarchist philosophy begins to develop in unison with a natural understanding of man's relationship to the natural world. Not above it, within it. And I think yeah. that's important for us to understand. We've, we've lost that. I mean, we are literally destroying the planet as we sit here doing this podcast right now. And nobody seems to really care. Yeah, I just want to emphasize the sentence here. He says, man's relation to this nature cannot be external, cannot be those of slavery or struggle. He carries nature within himself and is nothing outside of it. Just stressing that we are nature. We carry nature within ourselves and exist within it. There is nothing that exists outside of it. So painting it as like man against nature, et cetera, is just nonsense. Right. Conquering the West by damming up all of the rivers or mm -hmm. placing ourselves up at the, at the place of some sort of arbitrary uh, pyramid of species. We are the, uh, what's it, the apex predator and things mm -hmm. along those lines that those are all ideally, ideally made concepts for exploitation of the material world. Mm -hmm. Bakunin has this to say on materialism and nature. Materialism starts from animality to establish humanity. Idealism starts with divinity to establish slavery and to condemn the masses to perpetual animality. Materialism denies free will and ends in the establishment of liberty. Idealism in the name of human dignity proclaims free will and on the ruins of every liberty founds authority. What do you think of this like new this like now different angle on the materialism versus idealism discussion that we've already kind of had a little bit? What are yeah, I think he's really talking about Hegel's ideas here when he says idealism starts with divinity to establish slavery and to condemn the masses to perpetual animality. You know, this idea of God, this abstract divine, right, this deity, whether it's like the Christian God or any other type of deity that is sort of the all-encompassing ideology, the Geist, to use Hegel's term, right, right. that that immediately makes man the slave to this way of thinking, to this abstract being, right, which he clearly has a problem with and disagrees with that being the origin of human consciousness and so on. I mean, it's very Enlightenment era or end of the Enlightenment era thought here that this new look, at, this new lens to look at the world through like empirical evidence and materialism mm -hmm. and things like that could be a path to like liberation, even though it, it, it in and of itself, by looking at the world through material context, contexts, removes the agency of the individual because of those contexts actually could lead to liberation, whereas the others, like the ideologies, like religions or uh, political organizations, argue that they are practicing like this idea of mm -hmm. liberation when they're doing nothing but constraining it. Yep. So anyway, next one's on you. Liberals are well aware that no historic state has ever been based on a contract and that they have all been founded by violence and conquest. But they need this fiction of the free contract as the basis of the state, so they grasp it without further ado. I love this very clearly. 
this is a critique of like the Rousseau's of yeah, the world take that, and Rousseau. <laughs> contract theory, right? He says, liberals are well aware that no historic state has ever been based on a contract, that they have all been founded by violence and conquest. And I think it's just hilarious. He's saying like, this is completely fabricated. That has never mm -hmm. existed. And like, we know this, right? No one has ever signed a contract that like, we're all of us, of these citizens are going to be form a state now. And we all like, that's not a thing that has never happened. And I think Bakunin just nails that clearly. This myth of the social contract, it's not a thing. Yeah, I'm a historian. I can give you every example of every form of social organization. They're all found in violence and exploitation, every mm -hmm. single one of them, from, from Roman empires to Greek city-states to the British Empire to modern-day nation-states like the U.S., they're all founded on violence, every one of them, and exploitation. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, he also has this to say, though, about organizing society. He says, To organize society in such a manner that every individual, man or woman, should at birth find almost equal means for the development of his or her various faculties and the full utilize, utilization of his or her work. So he's saying that, in, in essence, that if we are going to organize a society, that, that yeah, I mean, we, don't, we need equity in opportunity and equity in practice. Uh, I think that's kind of obvious regarding this, uh, his views on what could mm -hmm. be a communal anarchist kind of system. But Yeah, but I really like this as like just a really quick sentence on like what do anarchists want. Now, clearly nowadays it doesn't encompass every single anarchist ideology, but, you know, it, it could be a great answer when someone says, well, what, are, what are the anarchists after? Like that's a pretty good summation of what they want without going into like specifics and nuances. And I think very clearly it's a contrast from what most people think of when they think of anarchism or anarchy and they think of like chaos and violence and the purge, right? That's not it. This is what the anarchists, at least Bakunin, was after. And we go over more of that in our video, uh, right. What is Anarchism? Right. In contrast, he argues that the state, historically, it was born out of the marriage of violence rapine and plunder in other words of war and conquest from its beginning it has been the divine mainstay of brute force and rampant injustice even the most democratic land such as the united states of america or switzerland it is the prevailing sanction of minority privilege and the practical subjugation of the vast majority so this kind of goes with what he was saying in, in in a prior quote but he takes it a little bit further with of course some some very specific examples and this concept of practical subjugation of the vast majority what do you think he means means by that yeah we actually i use a quote by bakunin it's not this one but in the super short i guess not super short the 15 minute video or whatever the that we have um what is the state i use a quote from bakunin and he talks about his theory basically is the state is an insurance between business military and the aristocracy to ensure that they are all protecting uh, the same interests basically which happens to be the interest of the industrialists uh, of bakunin's time and, and they do that through violence, where the aristocracy and the businesses can make use of the violence of the organized military and so on to ensure their spot at the top of the social hierarchy. Um, yeah, he's just furthering talking about how even the origins of the state are violence. There's no social contract. There's no people coming together voluntarily right. to enter into this relationship that people are forced into this way of living, which is clearly important. Uh, for the anarchists. To take it to the most basic and simple level, check out our video. It's called Are You a Peasant, essentially. Mm -hmm. And we and we break down this social pyramid that started way back in the birth of birth of civilization era. And and regardless of, of the different types of government we've had over the uh, the millennia, it really hasn't changed. The pyramid structure is still the same, right? There yep. is a small minority controlling the vast uh, amount of resources or knowledge or wealth uh, within a state. And, yep, so. exactly. 
Uh, then he talks about the maintenance of the state. He says the state, any state, even when it is dressed up in the most liberal and democratic form, is necessarily based upon domination and upon violence, that is, upon despotism, a concealed but no less dangerous despotism. The state or political right denotes force, authority, predominance. It presupposes inequality, in fact. Where all rule, there are no more rules, but there is no state. Where all equally enjoy the same human rights, then all political right loses its reason for being. I mean, this is anarchism in a nutshell, right? The state is founded upon violence, uh, despotism, and so forth. And if we can voluntarily enter into relationships, um, then the state will exist no more. Um, though Bakunin is one of the first in this lineage of anarchist thinking that says that has to happen revolutionarily. Uh, Proudhon was like a gradualist where he thought it would just happen over time. Bakunin is really the next sort of iteration of anarchism that is, he's one of the first revolutionary ones. Right. I mean, to be blunt, what he's saying here is regardless of, of what station you are in life, especially if you're among the various labor classes, think about all the relationships you have, whether they're with family or, 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 or management at your job or whatever it is those relationships are always inequitable. There is always a, to use like Confucian filial piety, there is always like a leader and there is always a follower in every one yeah, of these Or like ways. Hegel's master slave, right? Right, like that's that's the idea here. Like, and, and, and basically he's calling that out, that that is unnatural, that that has been socialized into both our material and I, we would add ideal practices over time. I don't know that he would add the ideal, but we certainly do. Mm -hmm. All right, now we get to some fire from Bakunin on Marx directly. He says, Marx could construct a still more rational system of liberty, but he lacks the instinct of liberty. He remains from head to foot an authoritarian. Marx angles Bornstadt right, dissertations about life, action, and feeling, while embodying a complete absence of life, action, and feeling. The epithet bourgeois is shouted ad nauseum by people who are head to foot more bourgeois than anyone in a provincial city. I mean, I don't even know the commentary we need on that one that he pretty much lays out his problem with Marx and Engels and so forth. I think of this, if you're listening and this is kind of like an introduction into anarchism and socialism and, and, and things like that, and you haven't listened to some of our other episodes, basically what he's saying is even though he agrees with Marx on historical materialism, in terms of social organization and where we're heading on this trajectory, he would argue that Marx is completely on the wrong track. That that Marx says he's about all of these things, but in reality, the fact that his his practice here, is, well, what he advocates as practice, Marx really didn't ever get to practice anything, but what he advocates as practice is anything but. Mm -hmm. Right. It is a still a top down. I mean, and this is really one of the differences that we hear happen all the time in arguments on the left. A, a major difference between anarchists and, and socialists in this regard is the vehicle for transmitting or, or transforming us into this more equitable society is right. the sticking point. Mm -hmm. Right. The a dictatorship by the proletariat is anything but anarchist. It cannot function. Right. And achieve equality later. Mm -hmm. Then he furthers his problem with Marxism. Well, Marx's thought at the time, I don't want to say Marxism because that's a completely different thing, communism. He says, I hate communism because it is the negation of liberty and because humanity is for me unthinkable without liberty. I am not a communist because communism concentrates and swallows up in itself for the benefit of the state, all the forces of society, because it inevitably leads to the concentration of property in the hands of the state, whereas I want the abolition of the state the final eradication of the principle of authority. I want to see society and collective or social property organized from below upward by way of free association, 
not from above downward by means of any kind of authority whatever. I am a collectivist, but not a communist. Yeah, this is just more depth on that very basic concept that you cannot create a system of equality starting from a point of inequality. It's that simple. You cannot have one group of people dictating to the others how life's going to work and expect to uh, prefigure what an equitable society is going to look like. That That's... I mean, it's completely asinine. It's still an asinine argument that we're having to this day. And again, we hear it all the time on the left, especially from like, uh, dare I say, you know, Trotskyists and and Mm -hmm. Stalinists and even the the remaining Maoists that somehow exist. Like anything but liberty is what's going to be achieved by following that type of discourse. This is why Bakunin is such a influential anarchist philosopher i mean he's basically laying out the foundations of modern anarchism uh in that quote well and unfortunately history kind of bore this out in all of the examples i just brought out like mm-hmm. the the revolutionary vanguard or whatever the, the 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 dictatorship of the proletariat never really wore away in what became the soviet union right it mm-hmm. was still a top-down uh it was just a pyramid by a different name not unlike the united states not unlike a british monarchy not unlike a french monarchy they were still all pyramids the soviet union never achieved the equitable goal that it sought out and and neither did china that we could argue cuba's as big of fans as we are what a lot, a lot of what they did down there they never really achieved that right yep yeah. you're pissing off so many of our socialist listeners okay uh, yeah good bakunin had this to say about marx and engels excluding the peasant from the movements he says There's no point of extolling or denigrating peasants. It is a question of establishing a program of action which will overcome the individualism and conservatism of the peasants and not only prevent their individualism from propelling them into the camp of the reaction, but to enable that individualism to serve and ensure the triumph of the revolution. He very clearly is saying, we will never be successful if we remove, in this case, the vast majority of the population from our movement, if we exclude them and don't include them in the, what we're doing, and we can't create a message that is appealing to them that will inspire them to join the movement. This it was, ha- yeah. I mean, this is like a, cre- a critique on, on, on notions of intelligentsia, that there are some people that are just smart enough in the unwashed masses. But again, like if we, if we think about this, even from like other forms of like political discourse, like that's the critique that socialists have of other discourses, yet they have, they're committing the same i guess intellectual atrocity by doing the same we're just smarter and we know what's better for you right now we're going to ignore your input because again using the very simple example we are the revolutionary vanguard or we are the dictatorship of the proletariat whatever it might be Mm -hmm. like that's that's clearly what he's critiquing now and that makes it antithetical to views his views on liberty next he talks about falsehoods of republicanism he says Representative government harmonizes marvelously with the capitalist economic system. This new status system, basing itself on the alleged sovereignty of the so-called people, was supposedly expressed by their alleged representatives in mock popular assemblies and incorporates the two principal and necessary conditions for the progress of capitalism, state centralization and the actual submission of the sovereign people to the intellectual governing minority, who, while claiming to represent the people, unfailingly exploits them. Reminds me a lot of like what Foucault uh, says regarding mm-hmm. like capillary systems of power and things yeah. along those lines. Even I, governmentality. I, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, and then then we throw in like Weber's notions of like monopolies of violence in there as well. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that, I don't know. I mean, do we need more commentary on uh, that? I one? don't think so. I think it pretty much Republican itself. style governments uh, are anything but democratic. Right. right. Like, that's exactly. essentially what he's saying there. I, I, I mean, we could debate that till we're blue in the face, but he doesn't think that they um, diffuse democracy the way that they say they do. Mm hmm. You want to read the next one? Yeah, absolutely. This is what he has to say about the rebellious spirit 
um, historically in all states. He says, I contend that there has never existed a people so depraved that they did not see at some time, at least at the beginning of their history, revolt against the yoke of the slave drivers and their exploiters and against the yoke of the state. This is important because he says the state itself manufactures a rebellious spirit merely through its existence, that man is not meant to be controlled this way. Again, whether we're talking about a monarchy or a democracy or a communism or whatever, any formation of a state will lead to consistent rebellion. And not even like the state is formed and then there's rebellion. I mean, there is resistance to a state from the beginning when the state is attempting to form. There's a really good book we use in some of our classes called The Art of Not Being Governed. It's by James C. Scott, who's an anthropologist, an anarchist anthropologist, where he talks about this extensively, the history of people revolting against states and resisting being incorporated into states, both historically and in modern times. It's really, really good. Uh, so Bakunin, writing in the 19th century, is absolutely correct. Which ties back to his arguments that it's wholly unnatural. Any formation, any social organization that is top-down is unnatural, no matter what they call themselves. And yeah. lastly... He talks about organization and materialist sort of versions of revolution. He says, revolutions are not improvised. They are not made at will by individuals. They come about through the force of circumstances and are independent of any deliberate will or conspiracy. So here he's saying, I mean, this is basically the structuralist theory of revolution, uh, you know, 100 plus years before uh, Theta Scotchpaul is writing about it extensively. Um, not that her work isn't valuable. She clearly it is. Mm -hmm. But uh, the seeds for this way of thinking was de were definitely planted uh, long before. Um, this is against voluntarism, right? Bakunin saying that revolutions come about by material forces, that people are motivated to revolt when the material circumstances that they exist within uh, reach a certain level, whatever that might be. And it's clearly very different based on specific societies. And, and though he didn't say this, I would add, when these material conditions reveal the hypocrisy and lies of the ideal of that given state or era that yeah. that that has to happen as well so excellent point all right that's all we have that's a just real quick run through of some of Bakunin's ways of thinking some quotes from him directly um, you can catch us online at revolutionandideology.com. If you want to send us a message, we're on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. If you really, really love what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolutionandideology. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for making videos like this possible. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.